Hello, my name is Veronica Rooney. And my name's Brooklyn Shively. And this is Resilience, a podcast sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences and a proud partner of the 2021 semester program. Resilience is a word used to describe communities bouncing back from tragedy, nations recovering from crises, the land we live on after being ravaged by natural disasters and the effects of climate change. It's how we describe those who overcome adversity and thrive. On this podcast, we will interview professors in the College of Arts and Sciences about how their work intertwines with resilience, exploring how populations rethink systems to combat climate change, fight racial oppression through youth organizing, or adapt to a booming mediascape. We have a tremendous capacity to bounce back, or do we? Join us as we explore this year's Themester topic, Resilience. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Michael Hamburger, an expert in seismology and the dynamics of earthquake and volcanic processes. We talked to Dr. Hamburger about his career studying natural disasters and mitigation strategies and the ways that natural disasters and climate change are intertwined. How do we bounce back from natural disasters and respond to climate change? And how do we help the ones among us who are most affected by these tragedies? We talked about this and more with the one and only Dr. Michael Hamburger. Hi, we're here with Dr. Michael Hamburger. Good morning. I'm great and nice to see you guys. It's nice to see you too. We're going to be talking today about natural disasters and resilience combined with mitigation for these natural disasters. Sure. That's stuff I think about a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's stuff that I remembered a lot from, our, from your class that I had. Good. Stuff. Good. I like it when the students tell me they think of me when a disaster. Yes. <laughs> So how would you define natural disasters and what impact has climate change had on these disasters? Well, there are, of course, a variety of definitions. The kind of working definition I use for my research and for my teaching is a sudden onset, naturally occurring phenomenon that produces devastating human impacts. And the words are chosen kind of specifically to include some things and exclude others. I think an important operational world word is naturally occurring, so that you know excludes things like uh, chemical spills or wars. Um, the um, sudden uh, initiation kind of excludes slow developing things, perhaps like pandemics or climate change from the definition, mm-hmm. and focuses on things like earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, and so on that come with a with a sudden shock. Um, and of course, the devastating human impact really encompasses our <laughs> focus on ourselves. So when a big volcanic eruption happens in some remote area of Siberia, we may not consider that a natural disaster because it doesn't affect us so much. So you, you would say that um, climate change doesn't really have an impact on disasters or would it make them more severe? Oh, no. I know. I didn't say that at all. So uh, climate change is implicated in almost all of the natural disasters. 
what I mean is the definition of natural disasters themselves does not generally encompass the, the slow developing stress of climate change. However, um, climate change clearly is having an impact both on the frequency of natural disasters, particularly um, certain types of weather-related disasters, and uh, it also uh, changes the impact. So just as a, a simple example, one of the um, indirect impacts of climate change is the rise of sea level. So mm -hmm. the, the melting of glaciers in the Arctic and in, in uh, mountainous regions is leading to more water in the world's oceans. The, um, the level of the world's oceans has risen, risen by something like eight to 10 inches over the past century. And although that may seem like a minor amount, uh, every time a uh, tsunami occurs or a hurricane storm surge occurs, uh, it inundates significantly more area because of that sea level rise. In addition, climate change is implicated in uh, both the occurrence of and the severity of, uh, for example, tropical cyclones. So the uh, number of hurricanes, their intensity and their impacts are expected to increase as a result of climate change. And then finally, there are these, uh, I would say, kind of ambiguous natural disasters like wildfires that are kind of right on the boundary of uh, naturally occurring events and human-caused uh, uh, events. Um, and these are almost certainly occurring with more frequency and more severity as a result of climate change. So there's a very intimate connection between climate change and these natural disasters. So I read that you started working on natural disasters years ago. And one of your first jobs was you went into the Soviet Union and you were doing research there. And I'm just curious, obviously in the in like recent mainstream news, climate change is much more like openly discussed. And I'm wondering like, at the time, did you have, was it as imminent of an issue within the field? Was it something that was like being discussed actively? or has the focus of your research on natural disasters changed as climate change has kind of come into the forefront? Well, I should clarify that the actual uh, class of disasters that I mostly study, earthquakes, uh, volcanic eruptions, tsunamis, solid earth disasters are kind of on the end of the spectrum that is less directly affected by climate change. Uh, mm -hmm. But I've, my interests have broadened to include many uh, different types of climate change, different types of natural disasters, excuse me, and their impacts. And so I've gotten more interested in the, the impacts of climate change. It's certainly fair to say that um, when I started my work in the geosciences in the late 1970s, climate change was just not perceived as a global issue of paramount human importance. Uh, certainly the research was developing at that stage and the understanding of the way our influence on the Earth's atmosphere could affect climate, but it really wasn't until uh, a couple decades later when it really rose to the level of interest that it, that it has now. In addition, my own uh, personal interests have broadened from the more specific uh, technical aspects of 
um, solid earth natural disasters to more of the societal impacts and what we can do about them. So kind of going along with that, because I'm really interested in that, just like how your work has shifted to focus more on like the populations affected by these crises. So what kind of sparked that change in your interests? I, I would say it's a combination of things. I, uh, probably about 25 years ago, uh, I started becoming more involved in environmental issues, environmental advocacy. I'm, of course, of the generation that kind of grew up with Earth Day and with uh, interests in uh, environmental issues. I think it was sometime uh, midway through my career that I recognized that there was a connection between the natural disasters that I study and the human influences on the natural environment. I think many of us used to think of those as kind of separate issues where the work we do is kind of protection from the environment and the work the environmentalists do is protection of the environment. In fact, they're both intertwined and the, there's a kind of growing recognition that the ways we have influenced the earth system are so pervasive that they affect virtually every aspect of every natural system uh, and of course affect the way they interact with human society. Um, I'll just mention a really pivotal moment in my own career was uh, a year I took off about five years ago to participate uh, and a special program run by the National Academy of Sciences called the Jefferson Science Fellowship, where I spent a year in Washington uh, working in the State Department as, a, as a, a, a science advisor to the State Department. And it was the year of the Paris Climate Accords. So I became more directly involved in kind of global issues of diplomacy related to climate studies and, uh, and climate mitigation. That's so exciting. So would you say that um, conservation and environmentalism in general is a form of mitigation now for natural disasters? Would you classify it as that? Uh, I would say they're all intertwined in very complex ways. And one of the challenges for us as scientists and as citizens <laughs> is to really understand the causes of different kinds of environmental issues. So the, the solutions to some issues may actually conflict with the solutions to other issues. And what we're increasingly task to do is to find comprehensive solutions that address, um, you know, both vulnerability to natural disasters, conservation, um, recycling, uh, transportation systems, and so on. And it really, you know, at the, at the broadest scale, it means rethinking how we live as humans and what kinds of uh, communities we want to build and how we want to um, produce and use our energy, um, but in fact, you know, some of the some of the solutions to some of these challenges may involve using more energy or uh, using special resources to strengthen our you know strengthen our society. So it involves very complicated decisions. One of the things I find intriguing about the discussion going on now about um, the infrastructure legislation, for example, is our 
federal government now is really trying to take a big look at the whole structure of our society and how we can use the levers of federal funding and legislation maybe to influence the way our cities are built and our transportation systems are built. And hopefully we will make some smart decisions that will both um, improve the efficiency of our use of energy and um, reduce our vulnerability to natural disasters. But it's a really um, complicated, some call it a wicked problem that involves a lot of trade-offs and a lot of, uh, a, a lot of critical thinking about a lot of different issues, which by the way, is why students from all different disciplines, not just the sciences and engineering, but the humanities, arts, history, political science, professional uh, training are needed to solve these wicked problems. Since you kind of have that unique experience of bridging the gap between scientists and then the State Department, um, would you say that relations between these two fields are improving over the past few years with working together and compromising? Or do you have any suggestions on how to improve that bridge? Oh, well, let's see. <laughs> it depends on which bridges you're talking about. Of course, uh, we're facing very severe political divisions within our country and in other countries around the world, um, and also divisions between countries. Uh, and, um, you know, this is where um, communication, uh, diplomacy, compromise come in. Um, things have become very, um, uh, in some ways, intractable in our own country in terms of finding common solutions. It's interesting that the term resilience um, is, uh, is a term that seems to uh, bridge kind of political differences that um, everybody wants to live in a society that is um, prepared for and able to withstand the shocks of the future and is willing to put some resources uh, to, towards that end. Um, of course, when we get to specific discussions about what is involved in, um, in creating that resilience, I think that's where some of the difficult you know, discussions have to happen. I do think uh, there is a moment here where, at least in our country, we are starting to uh, grapple with some of those really big issues. And um, there's a sense that the momentum is changing as, for example, the uh, auto manufacturers say that they are transforming the kind of vehicles that they're producing in the next few years that in turn will transform our use of fossil fuels. Um, building designers are uh, coming up with incredible new ways to increase uh, efficiency and energy use in buildings. New energy supplies are developing at lower and lower cost that are changing the way we produce energy. So there's some very interesting, exciting developments. I think the question is, uh, can they happen at a pace that's rapid enough for us to protect ourselves from the most severe consequences of climate change? Would you say that kind of like the environmentalism agenda is motivating 
these like large corporations to make this shift because they don't necessarily have any business reason per se. Would you say like environmental advocacy is playing a role in this shift? That's a really interesting question as why and how all of these changes take place. Uh, And of course, there are um, people who study corporate decision makings and the the, um, processes that move them in certain directions. Certainly, large corporations are very sensitive to their public image. And so as public perceptions about um, environmental issues in general and climate change in particular change, the corporations have to change their um, their public facing policies. And I think they may not do it in the, the pace and the manner that some of us would like, but they, the fact is that they are being pushed not only by the public, but by their own investors to make, uh, make some of those big changes. In addition, there are um, corporations that realize that there are ways of making money off of these new initiatives. So obviously developments in um, solar and wind energy are driving technological innovation and investments in those technologies. And as more and more investment is going into them, the price is going down and it's a positive feedback system uh, that helps uh, that helps make that happen. I think it's important to note that there are people who argue that relying on the corporate profit motive to solve these problems um, is a is a false hope. That our system uh, is really designed towards maximizing profits, independent of whether that helps the long term good of civilization. And certainly in the areas where I work. One of the biggest blocks um, to progress is that there's no good way to make money off of it, or how are we going to make money off of it? And how is this going to benefit the corporations? And so how do you make people that are in the top 1%, the people that are going to be like paying for these changes, how do you convince people that are so high up to care about the people that are being affected so intensely by these natural disasters? Well, of course, that's a fundamental societal question about inequity uh, and impacts, not just of natural disasters, but of, uh, uh, of disease, of uh, environmental challenges, of uh, uh, you know, uh, public safety, all affect the, the poorest and most vulnerable much more than the, the wealthiest and the most comfortable. Um, there's a lot of Um, productive discussion about inequity and about what we can do about it. Um, And we find, you know, natural disasters um, kind of amplify those differences in society. It it came out most dramatically uh, in this country in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, Mm -hmm. where uh, it was very clear that it was not just uh, the poorest, um, you know, percent of the population, but entire neighborhoods where the poorest lived were inundated. And in fact, it was a combination of the natural disaster and the failure of our engineered systems that directed the impact so pointedly at the poorest people. And then in the aftermath, the um, 
insurance system, which helps you know with the rebuilding and reconstruction, um, benefits the wealthiest again. And we see this uh, over and over again in natural disasters that uh, the people with the greatest means are the ones who are most able to rebuild their lives afterwards. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we have to be thinking in the large scale about social systems and economic systems that provide a true safety net for um, for the poorest and most vulnerable. And that's a, uh, a pretty challenging thing to do. I remember during, when I was in your class in first semester, you also mentioned, and this is a group of people I never thought about, like the elderly or people in hospitals, they're also majorly affected by this and medical employees that have to stay in the hospitals during these disasters. Would you, it, it was kind of shocking to me because they are so ingrained in a system which is that profits a lot, which is our medical system. Is there is there any are there any projects working towards focusing on mitigation and specifically hospitals and nursing homes? Certainly when, when you talk about vulnerability to all kinds of things, the the um, the elderly and uh, those with chronic diseases are, you know, vulnerable to all kinds of uh, um, stresses and shocks. And certainly the pandemic um, this past year and a half really demonstrated that where the impacts of the pandemic were felt so strongly on, the, on those people. So um, there have been efforts, again, in the case of natural disasters, to try to make a special focus on those most uh, vulnerable communities. And organizations like hospitals and nursing homes, in principle, are required to have extensive disaster preparedness um, policies in place. As we learned uh, in Hurricane Katrina, for example, though mm-hmm. most of those preparedness plans were not well enough thought out and many people um, died and suffered as a result of the, that, uh, you know, failure to think through the impacts of the, the worst kinds of natural disasters. But then there's the whole question of the people who work for and participate in these uh, organizations. And again, in the case of COVID, um, we saw that the medical workers were the ones who were forced to uh, and, and uh, figuratively run towards the fire and kind of expose themselves to the, the, the greatest of hazards, often without, you know, appropriate protective gear and so on. And of course, many people in the medical support community were among those who died and suffered devastating consequences of the COVID pandemic. All of this comes back to the same kind of philosophy, and that is using our unique human ability to imagine future events that are beyond what we're normally used to. So here in Indiana, we haven't experienced a devastating earthquake in our lifetimes, but in fact, the science that I study of seismology points to the possibility that sometime in our future, we could have a significant earthquake in, the, in and around the state of Indiana, which leads us to think 
constructively about things we can do to mitigate the impacts. And we can be quite good at that. We, um, for, for a similar kind of earthquake that happens here compared to someplace in South Asia and Pakistan or uh, Iran or Afghanistan, there may be a factor of a hundred or a thousand times the number of fatalities due to the earthquake shaking than there is here in the United States. And that comes back to resilience, finding uh, ways of engineering that uh, protect our buildings and our infrastructure, finding public policies like building codes and insurance that, uh, you know, require that those innovations are implemented. implemented. Um, And as we learned tragically in this collapse in Miami this past week, yeah. um, we have to be super vigilant about making sure that our knowledge is applied across the board and protects all people. So it's a big challenge, but it's not an impossible challenge. Thank you to Dr. Hamburger for discussing his work with us today. The music for the intro and outro is Wrote This Letter Instrumental by Justin Anthony Adams and Sebastian Barnaby Robertson, provided by Universal Production Music under a non-commercial license. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Resilience, a podcast by Themaster.